We're going to be continuing in our series of Acts, and I felt what a better way just to leave you here with your spirits being uplifted than to talk about a stoning sermon, about a guy getting stoned to death. This is going to be fantastic. Um, so, you know, it's, we're going to make this as interesting as we can, but it's going to be a lot more storytelling and historical, so hopefully you guys are okay with that as we kind of paint the picture of what exactly is happening here in the book of Acts. So our story this morning, it sets place in about 36 AD. Uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ has already taken place, and now Jesus has ascended and gone up into heaven. And if you guys remember, so far in the book of Acts, we've seen that he's left behind this group of men and women to continue to push this gospel message forward, to go through all the lands, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, is what we heard back in Acts chapter 1. And they're actually doing this. And so they've started this early church movement where they're really trying to engage and capture people and bring them into Christianity in the land. And it's working great up to this point in time. We see people are coming, people are converting into Christianity, and it's this fantastic scene for the church as it grows. But during this time, somebody comes up and starts to complain, and it was for a good reason. You see, there were these widows that existed within the early church that weren't being treated properly. Now, we got to keep in mind that during this time, the early church was responsible for the actual distribution of food and the welfare of these widows. And so these people were looking at saying, well, if the church is supposed to be all loving like Christ and this uh, loyal and this friendly place, how can they be overlooking these widows? Like, this is a legitimate problem. And the apostles recognized this. And the reason why it was a problem is because these specific widows were referred to as Hellenistic Jews or Hellenistic widows. And if you're unfamiliar with that term, it's a term that actually was coined by Alexander the Great, that when he went to conquest and expand his territory, he wanted to make everything in one universal language, one universal culture and tongue, which was Greek during this time. And so it was called to Hellenize the land. So these Hellenistic widows, they were believers in Christ, but they weren't native to Jerusalem. And so the widows who were native to Jerusalem, they were very well known and very well taken care of. But these new widows who had come in who didn't live in the land but still believed in Christ, well, they weren't getting treated fairly, and they were overlooked quite frequently. So the apostles started thinking, well, this is a, a serious issue that we need to address. So they called all the people together to have this meeting, and as they're doing this, one of the apostles speaks up and says, let's pause for a second. I think it's kind of unfair that we need to stop teaching and preaching so that we can also add this additional task of taking care of these widows. Yes, physical food is important, but so is the spiritual food, and we can't be tasked of doing both. So they said, okay, that, that sounds like a fair request. So they got together, they put their brains together, and they selected seven guys to come together and kind of form this group of men who would oversee this distribution of food for the early church. It was a very great problem solving, and most of these guys actually are Greek, so it would help kind of solve this scenario. So of these seven guys that are named in scripture, only one of them we really know anything about, and it's a man by the name of Stephen. And Stephen's going to be the character I'm talking about this morning. Now, Stephen also was a Hellenist. Uh, we know that he was Hellenistic. He was not native to the land. By the way, this is not really Stephen. Uh, I looked online, but I couldn't find one. Um, so, but uh, we do know a couple things about Stephen. First, we know that he spoke Greek, which was very typical of Hellenists, that he comes from a land not in Jerusalem, so he spoke Greek. Second thing, we know that he was a believer in Christ. That's very important for our story. 
Third, we know that he attended a synagogue, as did most of the Jews during this time period. And fourth, and probably the most important, he was living in a foreign land. He was not native to the land. He was also considered an outsider. And even though he may have been viewed as different and as an outsider, he was still selected for this specific task because these widows would be nearest and dearest to his heart because he comes from a similar background as them. So Stephen did this job in the most amazing way as possible. I'm sure he had dreams. I'm sure he had visions. I'm sure he had goals of things that he wanted to achieve. But this is what he was tasked with, and he was all in for it. He was loyal. He was kind. He was caring. He was loving to these widows. He would go above and beyond and do whatever it would take to make sure that these widows were taken care of. And we know that it says, Scripture says that he became filled with grace and wisdom and power to the point where he was able to start performing miracles in the name of Christ. Great, great man doing a great, great thing. And in early pre-Christian times, the word grace that's actually used here is the Greek word charis. Um, and it refers to someone who has a winsome character, that his grace was attracting people to Christ. He was winsome. He was appealing. He was pleasant. And not only was he so full of grace and wisdom, we also see that the Holy Spirit came upon him and filled him with power to do miracles in the land. So not only was his grace appealing, but his power was appealing as well. Stephen was all in for doing the work of the Lord, no matter what it took. And God was sending some serious power back into his life to allow him to accomplish the task at hand. Now, Stephen wasn't some big shot. He wasn't some well-known guy. Like we said, he's a foreigner. He spoke a different language. He wasn't well-known, but God still used him to do some amazing things inside of the land. He wasn't an apostle but he was still gifted with the ability and the power to perform miracles. He wasn't a prophet, but he becomes arguably one of the best preachers in the entire book of Acts, as we'll see in a couple minutes. That's who he was. He was not some big heavy hitter. He was literally in charge of waiting on tables, but God still used him as weird and unique as he may have been to do some extraordinary things in the land. And his grace, it really was attracting people to Christ. His power was drawing people into Christ, and he was becoming too hot to handle. Now, I don't know if you guys remember the last time that I spoke back in the beginning of December. Uh, we also learned another story about two guys, a guy named Peter and a guy named John, who were also too hot to handle. You guys remember what happened to them? They were captured, they were questioned, they were arrested, and then they were severely flogged to the point of death and given a command never to speak the name of Christ or to teach it out publicly again. And now here, this guy named Stephen is right back in front of him doing the very same thing as what they saw Peter and John doing. But what's even worse is that this man named Stephen was beginning to look a lot and even sound a lot like Jesus Christ, whom they had just crucified. This was a problem for them. So let's pick up in our scripture this morning in Acts chapter 6. We're going to read verses 8, or, uh, 8 through 10. Now Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed great wonders and signs among the people. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the provinces of Cilicia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. But they could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. See, Stephen was full of grace and wisdom and power through the Holy Spirit. 
And anytime somebody comes up to power or becomes a prominent figure in society, people are always going to try to push them out of that position of leadership. Whether it be popularity, whatever it be, they are jealous. They don't like that person being there. It could be insecurity, jealousy, whatever it is. It's really the workings of the devil. What they see Stephen rising up to power, becoming well-liked and popular, and people are listening to him, and they're attracted to him, and they're going to him, and they say, whoa, 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 wait a second. We need to do something about this. This is a serious issue. So they try to come against him, but as scripture says, they couldn't even stand against his wisdom. They couldn't even stand against the power the Holy Spirit had put up against him. And look at how this continues. Now they're frustrated. So then they secretly persuaded some men to say, we have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen. They brought him before the Sanhedrin and they produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like that of an angel. So when you can't find dirt on someone, what do you do? You make it up. And that's exactly what these guys did. They got together and said, oh yeah, this, uh, this guy named Stephen, we, um, we heard him speak and he, he talked about Jesus and he talked about Moses and, and the temple and it was all blasphemous. Like everything he had to say was degrading and it was disgusting and totally theologically wrong and against the law and how dare he. And this gossip started to spread. The people in the community, the people in the towns heard it and they said, whoa, this major figure who's rising to power is speaking blasphemy against God, against the temple, against our faith, our religion, against all these things? Uh-uh. So they see Stephen and they drag him and they bring him into court. And they're holding him there with this intent to question him to figure out what exactly is going on. And it's so crazy that when we look at that, they're actually bringing a charge against Stephen of blasphemy, which is ironically the same charge they brought against Jesus himself. Look at this. Once again, it says, this fellow never stops speaking against this holy place, against the law. For we have heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. Now, I think it's really significant that we pause to look. The reason why they're pushing this idea of the temple so much is because during this time, Rome was the only entity that had power to sentence someone to death, to kill someone, unless it revolved around the temple or it revolved around things of religion. Rome didn't want any part of that. They said, well, if it's regarding the temple, you, the Sanhedrin, the high priest, you guys can deal with it as you see fit. So if the, the high priest can come and levy a charge against Stephen saying it's threatened temple destruction, they don't have to go and get Rome's approval to kill him. They can just kill him and they can make his death a public execution to show the entire Christian movement that this can't go any further. It failed with Peter and John beforehand when they tried to silence them. Well, maybe this time we can make a difference with Stephen and we don't have to get Rome involved. We can do whatever we want. And so they bring Stephen in and they begin to question him all with this hidden intent all along to have him executed. But all the while, while he's being questioned, never once does he defend himself, just like Peter and John did when they were being questioned. 
Instead, he turns it back and he goes in to preach in one of the most amazing sermons in the book of Acts. In chapter seven, it's 53 verses long, where the very end of it, he literally smacks them off of their feet. And he lives them so angry that they're going to result to stoning and killing him. And for Stephen, really in his message, it's not ideal. It's not this idea of destroying the temple. It's rather the redundancy of the temple. He's saying, look, guys, this is really what it comes down to. Jesus, he died and he rose again. And when he rose again, he became the final ultimate sacrifice. So we don't need the temple anymore because Jesus has become greater than the temple. In other words, he says that the second coming of the Messiah has invalidated your need for these sacrificial, ceremonial, traditional things that have just become a showy part of your culture. They have no bearing upon your salvation anymore. In plain English, literally what he says is we don't need anything other than Jesus. We don't need anything other than Jesus. And this phrase was so threatening to them. And I think that we miss it because we don't understand really where it's coming from. You see, during this time, the temple was a huge economic cultural resource in the land. People would come from far and wide to participate in the sacrifices and the traditions and the rituals inside the temple. The high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies once a year and give this sin of a, the sacrifice of atonement to pay for the sins of all the people for the entire year. So people would come from far and wide to present their sacrifices. They would be staying in hostels and in motels. They would be getting food to eat. They would be trading the temple was a major source of cash and economics. And Stephen is now coming in and he's saying, hey, guess what? We don't need the temple anymore. And the people are like, whoa, what? Like, this is our livelihood. You're directly challenging our entire cultural system. That's not even regarding religion. It's anybody who's associated with the temple is now directly being threatened. And that's what makes them so angry. How dare you try to upset our way of life? Who cares if you're right? Who cares what you have to say? You are now directly threatening what we base our life upon. And they are furious at him. They are angry at him. And it gets so crazy when we see what they start to actually do. And this is really where it all comes together. You see, just prior to this, we had saw Peter and John stand before the Sanhedrin and they said, Jesus is the only way. And they didn't know how to respond. So they beat them and they let them go saying, just don't say that again. Stephen now stands up and says the same thing, but this time it's not just words. It's not just some theory or theology of how to be a good Christian. No, he's actually putting practice and action behind it. And Stephen's day says, if you truly want to be a believer in Christ, you don't need the temple, you need Jesus. That's what you really need. What that really means, you don't have to go to the temple. You don't have to be a part of this Judaic culture in order to experience Christ. In our day, what does that mean? We don't have to go to other worship assemblies or other religions in order for us to experience Christ and his power in our lives. You know, when I was in college, uh, I had a class that was called World Religions. And I remember one assignment in particular in my class was our professor assigned us to go and visit a different church every other week of a different religion, of a different faith. 
And at first, I remember hearing that assignment saying, wow, this is super weird, super awkward. I don't want to do this. And so I didn't make a scene in class, but I approached him afterwards, and I said, I'm kind of confused. Like, I'm in Bible college to learn about God and Christ, and yet you're now directing me to other religions? This doesn't sound right. Something seems off here. And he told me something I'll never forget. He says, Matt, you will never truly be able to understand why someone so fervently holds on to their beliefs until you've been able to listen to what they believe and why they believe it. And at first I was like, okay, I, I understand that, but I, I still don't get the point of this assignment. He says, you won't truly appreciate why people are so hesitant to reject Jesus Christ or why they're so willing to reject Jesus Christ, hesitant to receive this free gift of salvation and the gift of the Holy Spirit until you can truly understand where they're coming from about what they believe, why they believe it, their traditions, the customs, the rituals, the rites, the practices, all these things that have been built up and ingrained in them year after year after year. You'll never be able to defend your faith successfully until you can know what other people believe and how they're going to come against you. And so I thought, okay, that's, that's actually unique and, and interesting. So over the course of 15 weeks, I ended up going to eight different churches comprising of four different religions. I would have gone to more, but some of them I didn't feel comfortable in, and some of them I couldn't even make it past the lobby because I wasn't considered part of the faith. And it was a very eye-opening experience for me. And over the course of those 15 weeks, what I really came to understand is that no matter where I went, there was always this feeling of unsettledness in my heart, of incompleteness. As I sat there and I listened to procedures and laws and practices and rituals and rites and tasks and these checklist items or bullet point things of these are the things that you have to do to potentially live a better life here or on earth. Not even a guarantee of a better life here on earth, but a possibility of a better life here on earth. These are all the hoops you have to jump through to possibly ever get it. I said, why? This doesn't make sense to me. I never left feeling encouraged or nourished or filled walking away saying, man, I am so excited that I want to go out and do these things because I'm motivated to do that. I never found any of that stuff. And so now looking back upon those 15 weeks, I can truly say that I don't participate in other worship experiences. I don't go to the Islamic mosque and pray. I don't go to the Buddhist temple and pray. I don't go to the Hindu temples and give offerings. And the reason why I don't is because I know that in all those situations, I'm not going to find the freedom, the peace, the joy, the excitement, and the fulfillment that only Jesus Christ can bring. It doesn't exist anywhere else that Jesus is the only way. And I know some of you may be sitting there thinking, well, Matt, that sure sounds bigoted. And that's exactly what Stephen's believers thought that day. It was a very uncool and a very unpopular thing to say. And it still today is a very uncool and a very unpopular thing to say. And they, they were angry at him for saying this. They were furious that he would even attempt to bring these kind of things up in front of them. And Stephen, he never once says, well, you know what? What I believe is true for me and what you believe is true for you. So just you do your thing, I'll do my thing. No, he calls them out in this sermon. He says, look, Jesus is the only way. There is no other way. And for the people, they're threatened because up to this point, Christianity, it just looked and it sounded like every other religion that existed. It was in the shadows. It had no movement to it. But now that a guy is standing up and saying, look, Judaism out the window, temple worship out the window, all these cultural, sacrificial, traditional things out the window, Jesus is the only thing that you need. They were upset. They were furious at him. How dare 
he bring these things up in front of us? How dare he go this way? And so they rallied against him. And when they rallied against him, they started bringing charges. Well, you know nothing about our history. You know nothing about our culture and our faith and the rich religious background we have. And Stephen just kind of laughs at them in his sermon. And he says, yes, I do. But you've had it all wrong from the beginning. Yeah, I know about Moses. I know about Abraham. I know about God. I know about your ancestors. But you've been wrong this whole time. God doesn't live inside of this temple. God is everywhere. And this was eye-opening for them. And, and they were frustrated. And then he goes on to say four things in his sermon that I consider the nail in his coffin. I know it's a very harsh expression, but four things that are so important. And I think that there's humor in every single one of these. The first thing he says is that God does not dwell inside the temple. And at first, this would have been like, <gasps> kind of to them, right? Like taken back. And he should have stopped there. But he continues on. And he says, made with puny human hands. Literally, he's saying that temple that you have so built up and worshipped and sacrificed and built your whole life around, it's this puny little insignificant thing in the scope of God and his plan. God is not in the temple. God is in heaven. God is in your hearts. God is everywhere. You don't have to go to a church. You don't have to go to a religious assembly to experience God because God is everywhere. God is not in your puny human-built temples. Second thing he goes on to say, I like this one. He says, you are stiff-necked, unclean, and uncircumcised people. So now he's directly insulting them. He says, literally, you're stubborn. You've got no love in your hearts. You hold sin and malice and hatred towards other people. You're no better than the non-believers. It would be like calling George Washington unpatriotic, right? They're looking at him and saying, how dare you? You're calling us like Philistines. Like this is, wow, this is revolting to them. And then he continues on and he says, well, guess what? The third thing that I want to say is this. You resist the Holy Spirit and you persecute those who try to do the work of God. And he concludes his message with a home run hit. And he says, you're just like your fathers and you have betrayed and you've murdered Jesus Christ. And not only that, but you have failed to uphold the law that you've been sworn to uphold your entire life. Your whole life is a joke. Light Sunday sermon, right? Pretty easy. But it's all true. That's exactly what was happening. And when they heard this, they were furious at him. They were so enraged at him. The Bible says that they gnashed their teeth in anger. If you guys don't know what that is, a dentist has said that gnashing of teeth is when you so tightly clench your jaw, it creates these small little dust particles because you're so angry and furious, right? Can you just imagine that scene that he's speaking and all of a sudden they're like, right? It's like, this is really awkward, intense moment there. But then he says something that takes it to the next level. Look at this. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven, saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Remember, up to this point, they only thought that God was in the temple. That's where he was met. That's where he was encountered. And Stephen is standing there. They're all angry and gnashing their teeth. And he's like, hey, look, there's God. Heavens have opened up and they're standing and he's staring down at me, watching me tell you all of this. That was the biggest insult they ever could possibly hear. 
And that, it sets them off. Look at this. It says, at this, they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him, dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. Can you imagine that? They're gnashing their teeth. They hear this. They just close their eyes. They close their eyes and they, or their ears, and they just start running and charge him. They grab him, throw him outside, and they just start pelting him with these stones. Crazy story that we see here in Scripture. It's a difficult story that we have to process, and I think what we can take from this is that we should not be surprised when there's negativity and opposition towards the gospel because it's always been there and it always will be there. And it's going to continue to get worse. It's going to continue to get violent no matter how hard we try. But we should not for one second think that just because we're experiencing hardship and negativity, that God's still not going to move that message forward. Because if we saw back in Acts chapter one, the Holy Spirit comes and enables us to do amazing things in the name of the Lord. This is the very same Holy Spirit that these people were resisting that day, that these people were running from that day. It's the very same Holy Spirit, if you keep reading that story, that enabled Stephen to fall asleep and not feel pain as he was being stoned to death. Holy Spirit that protected him in the midst of the most traumatic and tragic moment of his life. And this is the end of the story for Stephen. This is the final moments of his life. And it's a defining moment for the very first martyr of the Christians. Eventually, all the other ones are going to be martyred of the apostles, except for one who's going to die on a remote island named John. But it's also a defining moment, if you saw, for another man that we're going to talk about next week, a young man by the name of Saul, who they're laying their clothes at his feet, kind of, we did this for you, because you're the holder of the law. You're the holder of all of these things. Now, I'm sure Stephen, he had dreams, he had visions, he had things that he wanted to accomplish in his life. But on that day, his faith was put to the test. And he died because of his faith. But the Holy Spirit was still faithful to be there for him, even in the midst of tragedy, and help him through the toughest of times where he felt no pain. I know that's tough to think about, and despite the horrible outcome, God still used this defining moment in the life of Stephen to catapult the church in a direction it had never been before, in a way so more powerful than we ever possibly could imagine. And I think what we can learn from that is, I don't really know what struggles you've been fighting through this year. I don't know what this new year holds for you. I know that it's been tough. For a lot of us, I've seen a lot of the prayer requests. We pray over them every single week as pastors. I know there's a lot of loss and, and hardship and pain and suffering and, and financial worries and family issues and doubt and worry and fear. But the one thing I do know is that if you put your hope in Jesus Christ, he's going to fill you with the Holy Spirit because that Holy Spirit's going to enable you to get through the toughest of times. You are here today as a result of that, as a testimony to that. And I think instead of going into this new year making these resolutions that we never bother to keep anyway, what if we changed our mentality? What if we said, instead of creating a resolution this year, I'm actually going to challenge myself to think like this. If I truly believed that the Holy Spirit lives inside of me, that fills me with wisdom and grace and power to perform miracles amongst the land and the people, what would I do differently? 
What ministry would I get involved in? What volunteering opportunity would I step up for? What friend would I invite to church? What conversation would I have with someone? What would the Holy Spirit enable you to do if you let it have true control in your life? For Stephen, he let the Holy Spirit have control, and it was an eye-opening moment that shot the church so far forward to being closer to what it is today, to a better understanding of who Jesus Christ is in your life. It's so powerful when we think about this. So I challenge you just to go into this new year thinking this way. Thinking, if I were to truly let the Holy Spirit have control, what would I do differently with my life? Like I said, I know that we've all had a tough year. I know it's been a struggle. And a new year is upon us. And I, I, I didn't want to leave this message on this downer note of being stoned and all of these things. It's, I think that there's some excitement and there's some encouragement and knowing that there is power in the name of Jesus, that there is excitement, that there is joy, that there is peace. There's all of these things we've talked about in our series, the gifts of Christmas, the gifts that come from above. There's excitement that can only be found in Jesus Christ because Jesus is all that we need. And maybe you're at a point where you've been struggling because this year has just been terrible for you. It's been rough. Maybe you've taken six steps back in your walk with God. Maybe that you've had hardships in your family that have separated you or pushed you further apart. Maybe you've had doubts or fears or worries or uncertainties, not knowing what the future holds. But one thing I do want you to know is that Jesus is letting you know today that it's not too late. Jesus is saying, you know what? The past is the past. Tomorrow is tomorrow. There is a better, a brighter, a, the most amazing future that lies ahead of you if you grab a hold of this free gift, this free gift that nobody else can provide. Nothing on this world will fulfill for you. Nothing that will bring you that peace, that joy, that excitement, that fulfillment that you're truly looking for. And if you're in a spot where you're hurting and you're reaching out saying, God, why you are questioning? Jesus is saying to you today, this year is over and it's time for a fresh start. It's time for a new beginning, and I'm challenging you to not go into this new year the same way that you're leaving this last year, but to go with that renewed mindset that I'm gonna be different for Christ. I'm gonna be bolder for Christ. I'm gonna be more courageous for Christ. I am gonna go and do and be exactly what Christ has called me to be because he is all we need. Would you join me in prayer? Father, once again, we are just so, God, we are so delighted just to be in your presence, Father. We're humbled that you would have such a reckless love for us, Father, a love that overwhelms us, a love that fills us up, Father, a love that's never-ending, a love that rights all of our wrongs, a love that brings us back on track. God, we are so grateful that every single day, Father, you give us a chance to be new. Father, you give us a chance to have this fresh start. Father, even though things may not go as planned as we saw in the life of Stephen, Father, that we know that you still move in mighty ways that we can't even see. Father, do you still move behind the scenes of our lives? So, Father, I pray that you just build us up, Father, that you fill us with encouragement, Father, with nourishment, with comfort, with strength as we go into this new year, Father knowing that you are in control. 
Father, it's not our circumstances. It's not our situation. It doesn't matter what this world throws at us, Father, that you are there by our side. Father, that you have given us this free gift of your Holy Spirit just to lift us up, Father, to encourage us and give us power and strength to endure even in the face of the storms that come against us. So, Father, I pray that you just allow us to walk out of this place today with a mindset of a fresh start. What would we do if we truly knew, we truly believed that you are a part of our lives? Who would we forgive? Who would we invite? What would we do? I pray that you just continue to build us up as we close out this year and ring in the new year. We pray this in your name.